Welcome to the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life in Scottsdale, Arizona. This is the Out of the Park podcast series. We invite you to join us for other programming you can find on our website at www.franparkcenter.org. Join us. Welcome to the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life Out of the Park podcast series. I'm Wes Avram, the director of the Park Center and occasional host of one of our Out of the Park podcasts. Uh, our guest today on Out of the Park is the Reverend Judith Brackett. I'm going to introduce Judith to you in just a minute after I say this, that uh, in my role on staff, kind of helping to coordinate uh, programs for the Park Center for Faith and Life here in Scottsdale, uh, I'm actually uh, connected to, or that work is connected directly to my responsibilities as the senior pastor at Pinnacle Presbyterian Church in Scottsdale. Uh, this fall, in my role as the pastor, I have been inviting uh, about once a month uh, someone into the pulpit here and into conversation at Pinnacle, who uh, folks who I have cherished, valued, and respected around the country as a kind of uh, series that has been entitled, What's Next? What's next for the church? What's next for ministry? What's next uh, for the world in which we try to give witness to Jesus Christ through the church? Uh, one of those speakers is Judith Brackett. Uh, I have known Judith now for pushing uh, 20 years. Uh, admire her, her uh, presence, her thinking, her sense of the poetic, her understanding of ministry. She is a second career Presbyterian pastor, having spent, uh, in, in addition to other interesting things that she has done, she spent 23 years as a uh, well-respected uh, elementary school teacher in, uh, in the Philadelphia area, particularly at the Shipley School. Uh, she has been a Presbyterian pastor now for about a decade. In between there was seminary. Uh, she has, has had experience in Southeast Asia as a worker with the International Rescue Committee under the auspices of the United Nations and done a few other kind of interesting things in her life, too. So I was eager to uh, to host Judith here. We had a conversation at Pinnacle, and now we bring that ongoing conversation to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Judith. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. Well, thank you. I'm so glad to just get a chance to share you with our audience. It's an eclectic uh, set of things that we do here at Out of the Park. We have a series of conversations on the common good. We've had a series of conversations on race. We've had just um, a number of podcasts on uh, religion and the arts and uh, and these conversations with pastors about ministry and the church. And so I'm going to begin by asking you a question. I think uh, it used to be that uh, like generations ago, pastors, if they had a, a shaping academic or professional experience to prepare them for ministry, it was supposed to be in an area of philosophy or history or one of the classic humanistic sciences. And then over time, as ministers began to be perceived as professionals rather than teachers uh, first off then 
we began to hear that, well, really, a pastor should uh, know something about business. So maybe if you have a background in business or you have a background in counseling or you have a background in uh, one of the social sciences, that's a better preparation for ministry. Uh, but I have rarely heard anyone say the very best preparation for professional ministry in the church to guide the church today is having been a, a teacher. So I'm going to ask you that question. <laughs> what do you know, Judith, about the church and about leading the church today, having been an elementary school teacher for 23 years? I would say, Justin, how you worded your question, that's why I felt totally out of place in seminary, because I <laughs> didn't have a background in those things. Um, I always say that the children I taught, especially it was it was first grade, it was young children, that they were the most formative teachers that I could ever imagine. I learned how to love hmm. because they were entrusted to my care. No one, no one was a no. They were all a yes. And I needed to create a space in that classroom for them to thrive it was so funny studying in seminary that all these words, all this theology, all this writing, mm -hmm. it described what I already knew, an intuition that I developed in my life as a teacher. I think, I think this idea that they're entrusted to my care, no matter what, no matter what they brought, into the classroom, that was the beginning. That was a covenantal relationship. There was no way that they were a no. Now, when you say that they weren't a no, you mean you weren't to say no to them or they didn't say no to you? No one was a problem that could not be solved. Huh. Everybody was a possibility. Huh. Everybody was a yes. Everybody was capable of thriving. Maybe in the end, sometimes they needed a special educational situation and not one that I could provide, mm -hmm. but not because they were a failure of a human being. They just needed a different fertilizer, if you will. When children are six, mm -hmm. you don't have a lot of control over making them think. You, they, They're happy to look out the window. They're happy to play. I had to turn their attention and gain their attention, earn their attention to be attentive to what I wanted them to be attentive to. Um, sort of, I guess you could say, I, so I learned how to work with human beings to get them to participate. And I, I find that carries over into the church. Okay, so what's the difference between six and 60? You always begin with a compliment, with an affirmation. You you listen and you watch and you know them mm -hmm. because the way you invite a 60-year-old has to be specific to that person and what gifts you've witnessed and or what you've noticed they that they've delighted in or what they, given the variety of ways to participate in a faith community, what are ways that they typically volunteer. And then so you it's listening and watching and knowing in the same way 
watching a six-year-old who is increasing their reading vocabulary. You watch what book they choose when they get to select. Mm. You watch a child when they say, um, could I have permission to not put this back on the shelf? I need to keep <laughs> it in my desk, right? You, you watch that. Um, a, another thing I learned is I learned how to use my voice. And there are times when I would speak more rapidly and more loudly and more animatedly. Other times when I would, sometimes when the room would erupt into chaos, I would, I would speak in a whisper and, and everybody would go, Oh wait, what did she say? Mm -hmm. And, and I can feel it sometimes in the pulpit when I read the room as I'm preaching and I'm feeling that the congregation is a little sleepy that morning, mm -hmm. I, I've learned how to use my voice. I learned how to love because they were entrusted to my care. I learned how to love people that weren't, that weren't always that excited about me, including prickly parents. Mm -hmm. And um, what I learned from parent teacher conferences and it really comes down to love. And I, I always say that God, God identified me as kind of a slow learner. I needed about 20 years with children before I got to work with adults. And I always joke that so often I have a conversation with a member of my congregation. And then later on, it occurs to me, oh, my heavens, that so reminds me of Hannah. And I, I can remember certain children mm -hmm. because of just the um, the idiosyncrasies that people have. And it's all a joy. There's one of each in this world. All right. So that brings to mind, to me, two questions, one about God and one about the church. You want to start with God or the church? God. Okay, God. <laughs> <laughs> I've been um, puzzling over a comment I heard a pastor say when I was a teenager. Every once in a while, someone says something that changes you theologically because it gives you something to wrestle with for, for a long time. And what he said was, God's final answer is always yes. I've since discovered that that's a paraphrase of the Apostle Paul, I think, in First Corinthians, but that God's final word is always yes. That came to mind when you were talking about how these children are all yes and not no, and that we spend a lot of time in the church thinking about no. What are the boundaries? What are the... Uh, what are the things to avoid? What are the things we're to reject? What are the things we are to declare anathema? Uh, and I feel sometimes like we talk more about no than yes. Uh, but And in the back of my mind, I continue to hear that, that, uh, that idea that God's final answer is always yes. Is God an elementary school teacher? Oh, the qualities of Jesus as teacher resonate with me very deeply mm. because I think he was a brilliant teacher. And sometimes I'm reading scripture and I just marvel at how he taught the way he would take a question and enlarge it and answer so much more than the question that he was asked. But it's so funny. You've, you've sort of just hit on the theme of my sermon for this week of all things. <laughs> um, it's the, it's the end of the gospel of Matthew and the Pharisees, they've just been pecking away at Jesus and, and questioning his authority. And now this week it's, and what is the greatest commandment? I'm preaching it is that Jesus is the answer. Jesus, love is the answer. That's the final yes. And I'm equating this to, I'm making the analogy as being an eighth grader 
And I remember being handed my algebra book. Algebra was new. And this was amazing to me. All of the answers were in the back of the book. <laughs> and there was this moment when the class was incredulous. All of the answers were in the back of the book. But then we quickly learned that given the answer, when you did your homework, if you didn't get it, you had to go back and reconfigure and reconfigure. Mm -hmm. The answer was given. And I just see it the same way in that Jesus has given the answer. Jesus passed the test. You know, love, love with all your heart, mind and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and so I feel like that's the yes at the end. Yeah. And then life happens. I love the idea that sometimes we enter that process with the realization, not knowing how we got there. You know, we enter some point, there's a yes that happens and then we fill in the blanks both backwards and forwards. I have an answer, but what was the problem I was trying to solve? Uh, I have a, I have a restlessness, but I don't know why I'm restless. I have a, a, a sudden burst of energy, uh, but I don't know where that, I don't know what problem I solved in order to produce that energy. And so I'm going to go back and figure that out in order to then go forward, right? We're always moving in multiple directions at once to either get to the yes or respond to the yes. That's exactly how I see it. And, and, writing this sermon this week and simultaneously watching the latest of what's happening in Israel and in Gaza. Mm -hmm. Where's the yes? Is there any whisper, any inkling of a yes in this? Sometimes I think in our lifetime, we don't always see it, but I trust that Jesus is still the answer. I find myself reconfiguring like like rocks in a rock tumbler that you think and you think and you think and the pebble becomes smoother and smoother and it mm -hmm. takes time and it takes it takes trust. There were times when I went back to algebra class and I said, I think this was a typo. And very occasionally it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, to set that in context, uh, these podcasts uh, are kind of present online over a long period of time. We're recording today, 25th of October, so almost three weeks in to the Israel-Hamas war. And that's on uh, very much on the minds of uh, here and around the world. And Judith, I know you have recently been to the Holy Land. I was set uh, this week to be taking a group there and have lived there a significant part of my life. And I was um, thinking about what you were saying. I was reading a blog post uh, just this morning from Yoav Peck, who works with the Parents Circle Family Forum in Israel, which is an organization that brings together, I think you know it, um, family members of the bereaved, both Jewish and Arab, who have lost family members to violence uh, from the other side, so-called. Uh, over the decades, and they struggle to find a yes. They struggle to find together how to take care of each other and to say that uh, together in public that revenge is not the way, that um, that listening, uh, mutual forbearance, uh, working to find a path forward, uh, when it, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard, is the way. And I mention that because his his blog post this morning, he used the image of a table, and he said this is perhaps the most difficult time in his lifetime to say this, but he said he still believes and imagines and knows, doesn't just wish that there will be a table around which people who are now enemies, but will sit together and listen to each other and find a way together to live. <laughs> it seems like those are the people who are looking for that. Yes. In the midst of 
negation all around that becomes violence. Yes, and I, I think we need not, we can never rush the yes. It, mm-hmm. it takes time. And I, I think it's a spiritual violence if we rush the yes. But I, too, am looking for just little glimmers of fragments when I read a news story. One of the hostages that was released turned to her captors just before getting into the vehicle to be taken away. And she said, Shalom. And another in the Israeli publication, Haaretz, and the, um, there was an interview this past week with, uh, I believe his name was Yaakov Argamani. He's the father of a young woman currently being held as a hostage. And he was saying as much as he is passionate for his daughter's safety and her release, he said, De- more deaths will not will not be the answer. The only answer is to find a way to be in dialogue. Last Sunday, I preached on Psalm 46, having learned this that week about a, a new understanding for me of this beautiful passage, be still and know that I am God. And I remember that now as you're talking about how you can't rush the yes. And yet at the same time, we have to take action in the, in the real world. It's easy to say wait, but not Rushing is not about waiting. The idea of that beautiful passage, be still and know that I am God, is in the context of a psalm that is uh, enthusiastically anti-war. I mean, the verse just before it says, God will destroy the weapons. God will destroy that which destroys. Be still, which in Hebrew, right, is is an image of letting loose of the grip. It's actually a call for warriors to let go of their weapons. God will destroy what destroys. Be still. Let go in order to recognize the sovereignty of love. I've often had the experience when I'm out walking or in the world or in the woods that if I'm rushing, I don't feel the wind. Whereas if I'm still, I feel it. And I often think of that verse that when you think when using the metaphor of spirit as wind that blows where it pleases that you need to be still sometimes to even notice it so that in that in that way it speaks to not rushing not not running around trying to solve too quickly not reacting yes thinking uh, about what is the goal which does sort of lead me indirectly back to that the second question I had about the church in light of what you're saying about God's yes. I think, you know, before I went into congregational ministry, I was a college chaplain. And one of the big shocks for me going from a teaching setting or an academic setting to a church setting was how dispersed people's lives are in the church. College chaplaincy isn't an elementary school classroom, but kind of that everybody is within arm's reach. Students were always Mm. there. Faculty were always there. Administration, staff were always there. I, I had a kind of circle around the world of people that I served who were, who were accessible to me. There was a, a sort of uh, structure, a reliable structure to the community. I go into the church and it isn't there. The people's lives are everywhere. The church is a part of their life not the whole of their life. They're there sometimes, not other times. There are those for whom, who are within our arms reach all the time. And there are others who you see once every, you know, six months, maybe. And they're all part of the community. So how do we think about 
that quality of attention that you're describing in a dispersed community like the church? How do we create community that makes the yes possible? As you were writing, I took notes as you were writing. Um, I think, number one, we forgive them. I, I want to forgive people if they don't come every week, that when they come, that's good, right? I, I often hear people complaining about attendance. <laughs> I'll take what they're willing. I'm willing to work to participate with them as much as they're willing to participate with the church. I don't think there should be barriers to entry. I often feel I work my most intense part of Sunday morning is standing at the door and mm-hmm. making connections. And when it's eye to eye, often that's when I'll learn a new name, when I'll ask, oh, I remember that about you. How was that trip to Florida? And the surprise on their faces that they're seen and that they're known, I find that is effective. That seems to be meaningful to people and it, and it has them return. The church, people come with different needs. They come to different desires. Uh, yes to some person, to some one person is no to another. Uh, we don't always have an agreement about what it means to welcome each other in the church. Uh, and it, and that may not be a hazard to what you're saying. It's just the reality that, uh, we are as human a community as any other while trying to imagine and live toward this ideal that you describe in the teaching and person and presence of Jesus. Definitely part of my teaching life was very specifically first grade, and it was a big year for children's literate lives. And I felt very strongly, more and more strongly, as I taught that there were many, many, many ways to learn, to become literate, to learn how to read. And I would go to bat for children. And mm-hmm. I used comic books if that resonated with a child. I saw the more I watched and witnessed how children became literate, the more generous I was in letting them show me what they needed. In that way, I can speak about the church. If Bible study is a place where you can enter and it's meaningful and it's, and it's good to do, then great. That's not everybody's in. Mm-hmm. I like to think that I have a generosity in my spirit as I work with people, that there are many ways that you can access the divine and and for some people it's that they come on sunday and that's part of their life and they've got a hundred other things going on but it's how they spend their time and that's okay i once preached a sermon when we don't we don't claim a god of prerequisites i don't think that there are spiritual prerequisites to to belonging Several years ago, I was, I read a book by Barry Sanders, not the football player, uh, called ABC on literacy training. And this was at the recommendation of Ivan Illich, who uh, didn't like schooling very much. And uh, Barry Sanders in this book talks about literacy 
And one of his cautions, not all that different from kind of how Walter schools sort of do this. He said, wait, don't rush to teach reading. He said, against all of the families I know who are racing to have their children read and looking to see how well they read before they start first grade, he says, no, bathe children in literacy, in stories, bathe them in orality, read to them, tell stories, help them imagine other worlds, bathe them in narrative so that when they want to read, they know how to read, not just how to process letters. Uh, one, do you agree with that, too, from your experience? And two, is there something there about Christian education, too? So I have to tell a story that it once happened in my teaching career that I had. I was teaching first grade. And, and as the year progressed, you could just, the children would flourish more and more. But there was one little holdout. <laughs> this little Peter, both of his parents were librarians, and they were beside themselves, so distraught, which they tried to keep from Peter, that he wasn't reading. And they, we had so many conversations, and they said, what are we not doing? This, his mother was a children's librarian, to make uh-huh. it even worse. That child had, was read to all the time. And then what happened is I took a leave of absence for the birth of my first child. And when I returned to the school, there was an opening in third grade. I had my first graders for third grade. And if you told me that, you know, I agree with that. Everybody's on their own timetable. It's okay. I had bought into it a little bit and because I was surprised. And what happened is that Peter... Peter not only was an excellent reader in third grade, but his comprehension, what made him laugh, the nuance that he caught in the text, the way he would compare one story with another, it it was superlative. And that just was, it was that proof of he had such a rich foundation. I also had the interesting experience of, I studied with Lucy Calkins at Columbia Teachers College, and I found out and I learned a lot about, yes, that philosophy of how we watch and listen to what the children are doing and then what you what you then put under their nose, what you invite them to read is a way of bringing forward what is already within them and calling that forward. And I found out a number of years after working with her that she was a uh, biblical studies major. There was, and I didn't even really know until I was at seminary, her methodology, her pedagogy was filled with theology. It's assuming that the child will flourish, and and it's your job as the teacher to facilitate that. And the way one time, Wes, I heard you when you talked about the sort of the preacher or the, the pastor as the one helping to birth, midwifing a situation to to call forth what is longing to be birthed? I know a child who I won't name because it's his story to tell, so I'll say it more generically, but this was a child with a set of developmental challenges and sort of spotty delays here and there. And yet, so, and somehow by the end of elementary school, entering middle school was, oh, as far behind in reading as, you know, as you could imagine well let me say going into high school was about you know five six years behind in reading but had perfect pitch 
and discovered that and suddenly found a love and gift in music and found his entire identity in music and then started reading because he wanted to know more about music and forced himself to learn to read and to catch up because he had to know something and had never responded to all of the teaching techniques until he had a driving need to know and then caught himself up, right? Uh, I wonder how we do that in the church to try to help people understand what they need to know, what drives them to ask the God question. Uh, maybe we just wait and watch and listen. What would you have done with that child I just described as a teacher? I think I would have insisted that that child had worth and that and and that we would do i guess all you can do is what you can do in that time like a baton relay in that segment of time you do you don't right we're called to be faithful we're not called to be successful so you do all you can in the time that you have there was there's a man that's been visiting the church that i serve and he has been coming a visitor not no mention of joining and he's been attending almost every sunday for about 3 months and most sundays he exits the door mm-hmm. and he looks at me and he's crying and he said i don't understand why am i so moved it's happened week after week and this past sunday i said i'm wondering if you'd be interested in meeting for coffee or lunch and we can talk about this and he leapt at the opportunity mm-hmm. right i just i think it's noticing noticing and um discouragement just there's so many no's there's so many no's for a young child um often i would deal with the parents with their expectations um children know when their parents are disappointed with them they know when their siblings are achieving things that they're not I would say that child you described it sounds like there was some divine intervention there's there's some of the mystery there of how that connection was made because right the child didn't go looking for music it all mm-hmm. just kind of happened and that's that is that's just marvelous to witness You know what our time is up What a great way to conclude our conversation today. Thank you so much. I think uh, beware, and we might just call you again for another podcast. Uh, This has been a delight, Judith. Thank you for this time today. Thank you. This is the Out of the Park podcast series at the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life in Scottsdale, Arizona. Be sure to find us online at franparkcenter.org to find out more about our programming and to listen to more podcasts. Thanks for joining us at our Out of the Park podcast series. If you like this program and would like to check out more, go to our website at www.framparkcenter.org.